This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. Is customer experience solely the interaction you have with the customer at different quote-unquote touch points in a journey, or can you expand that journey and the touch points to touching their heart? That's the voice of Anne Barr-Thompson. She's the pioneer of the brand citizenship movement and an author of a new book called Do Good. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, we've touched on brand purpose a number of times over the last mm. couple of months in developing this podcast. And there's a huge trend of businesses trying to become better corporate citizens. So, I think it's time we got an expert on the show to explain this trend. This episode and this conversation, like, blew my mind legit in terms of how I think about corporate citizenship and brands' responsibility in the world. An absolute must listen. To give some context, Anne is a former executive director of strategy and planning at Interbrand, and she now runs a brand consultancy herself. On this episode, we talk about how your business can become a better corporate citizen, and she unpacks her five-step process, which not only will improve your customer experience, increase your employee engagement, but also make a better impact on the broader community. And we kick things off by asking her, what the heck is brand citizenship? It's ultimately an ethos that runs across an organization. From a more technical standpoint, it's a five-step model that aligns purpose and profit holistically. When a brand begins with a meaningful purpose, brand citizenship helps it deliver benefits to individual customers, employees, while simultaneously bettering the world. I think what's important is that the model of brand citizenship that I developed was not something that I purposefully set out to do. It's something that emerged unsolicited and from the grassroots up in research I was conducting in 2011. And the findings in that research were so intriguing to me that over the next three years, I granted myself money to deconstruct brand leadership from good corporate citizenship and from favorite brands, which is a proxy for brand loyalty. And so the five steps of the model help an organization to really start embedding in all its behaviors, not just its communications, the notion of purpose and doing good in a way that reflects how real people, not how experts or academics, think about good citizenship. Yeah, it's certainly the first time that I've come across the term brand citizenship and now exploring it. I'd be interested in that you term it a, a movement. Can you tell us a little bit about, I suppose, the origin stories of how brand citizenship grew as a movement? The reason I consider brand citizenship to be a movement has to do with how the whole model developed. I never set out to create the model. It wasn't that I said, oh, purpose is this trendy thing. Let's come up with our version of how we actualize purpose or how we help organizations define purpose. So at the end of 2011, we were conducting trend research. And what emerged in that research was a series of interesting learnings that we did not expect. We went out and asked people about their hopes and dreams for the coming year, their fears, things they were concerned about having to do with the environment, the economy, and a variety of other things, things about uh, which job they thought would be most appealing to someone entering the workforce, and a series of other questions in that vein. And then we asked people to tell us which brands would exhibit leadership in the coming year and why, which brands 
did they think of as good or responsible corporate citizens and why? And which brands did they think of as bad or irresponsible corporate citizens and why? And this research was conducted both in the US and the UK. And what emerged from this were a series of really interesting findings that I decided to explore. And they were, number one, under the surface, people were telling us that they wanted business to step in and fix the problems government wasn't addressing. And this was in 2011, end of 2011, which was another election year in the US. It wasn't as polarized as the past election was. However, at the time, we thought it was an exceedingly polarized election. In the UK, there was you know, the conservatives were there, there had been austerity measures, a variety of things. And people everywhere were being told the economy had improved after the 2008 decline, the the Great Recession, as it's now called. And so many real people were not feeling this improvement. And all they were seeing was partisan politics and things not progressing. And when they told us about their hopes and, and dreams and their fears, they were really weighty. We're, this is the end of the year. We're expecting people to tell us, oh, I want to lose weight. I want to stop smoking, you know, the standard resolution type things. But there were serious things. I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage. I'm worried about healthcare. I don't know about my education. My parents are ill. Variety of things that were really serious. And when they talked about brands that were leaders, they talked about them in the way that you also talk about government. So that was really fascinating. So that's one facet that led to where we went. And then the other thing that was interesting is the brands they were telling us were good corporate citizens were really surprising. So as you may know, when people do a lot of these ranking studies, they have a set set of brands they're asking people to evaluate. This was completely open-ended. And we had over 2,200 brands named. And Apple was the number one good corporate citizen. We expected them to be the number one leader, but we didn't expect them to be the number one good corporate citizen, especially since it was in the middle of what I believe was the Foxconn issue, and they were being lambasted by activists in the media for their supplier chains and and chip issues. So when people told us why, and we did not have the reasons why coded, we went and actually read reams and reams and reams of responses. And When they told us why they named Apple, it was because Apple has enriched my life. Apple has brought music into it 24-7, making every day more inspiring. Apple has changed the way I communicate with other people across the globe. So there was this whole me proposition in corporate citizenship. And in that same vein, Walmart in the US and Tesco in the UK were considered good corporate citizens because of the fact of how they price their products and services. Because they create affordable pricing, I lead a better lifestyle. So this was really shocking and fascinating at the same time. And we said something's changed in the world. And so we spent three years, I granted myself money over the next three years to deconstruct brand leadership from good corporate citizenship and favorite brands, which was a proxy for brand loyalty. And from that, the five-step model emerged. So it emerged from the grassroots up of what people were telling us without us setting out to even create the model. I mean, that's completely fascinating. And I think the thing that I'm most fascinated by is that you would think good corporate citizenship are those that do the best in the world. They pack the biggest punch in terms of maybe charities or, you know, they have an incredibly, you know, carbon neutral footprint in their, you know, supply chain and they are 
excellent corporate citizens and you know by by that measure there'd be many 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 companies that you know would far exceed apple although they are a good corporate citizen and they do care about a lot of those things it's amazing that you're saying good corporate citizenship ultimately became a selfish question as to how good are they to me personally <laughs> and make my life better so i wouldn't think of it as selfish so let's step back a moment that's where it begins it's not where it ends okay and we had a lot of brands named that were exactly the type of brands doing the type of things you mentioned. However, we had this slew of brands named and the one that rose to the top, the ones that rose to the top were some of these unexpected brands. In the US, Ford at the time also rose. If you remember the context I said, it was a period where people were being told their life should improve and it hadn't. And why was Ford a good corporate citizen? Because they turn themselves around and they represent the turnaround America and I can have personally. So it was like this, they needed inspiration. People were seeking inspiration because there was this lack of progress. But that's where corporate citizenship began. It's not where it ended. And when you think about the purpose of a business, if you go to what Peter Drucker defines as the purpose of a business, which is you know having to do with a customer, this starts making sense. Corporate citizenship should begin with delivering on your first premise as a business to create a customer, to do what's best for the customer. And over time, that evolved to actually also foster trust with employees because step one is all about trust. And from that, it spans out to bettering the world. But unless you do what's right and what your basic reason for existing is, there's no reason why you as a business, not you as a nonprofit, let's remember, you as a business should be bettering the world. We touched on you know, those two points. One was brands almost having to play a role or companies, corporations, businesses playing the role of government and arguably filling the gap that they feel like they're not getting, whether it be you know, a social service that they feel that society should be giving them that has traditionally been filled by the government. They're almost looking to, to companies and brands to fill that. And the second one was the good corporate citizenship, which is, you know, first look after me as a customer, and then I want to see you looking after others and society. Can we just unpack the first one, which was the way that you see businesses and brands almost taking on the role of government and filling in those gaps? What's that behind that? What was that? So what's behind that? So I want to step back and say we may be in this heightened time where people are talking about purpose and social responsibility globally of business, but the reality is the role of business has been debated for decades, if not centuries. And in chapter two in my book, where I talk about social value and financial value and, and our shifting definitions of value, I go a little bit through the history in a simple, easy to understand way. But ultimately, the notion that business should only serve a shareholder, not a stakeholder, a shareholder, originated in the 70s from an article Milton Friedman wrote in the New York Times. And the idea that a business exists solely to give a return to a shareholder stems from that. Prior to that moment, which had a lot to do with actually other issues going on that did have to do with the social responsibility of business, prior to that moment, the notion of what business's responsibility was existed in different shapes and forms. You just think about the industrial age and how companies built factory towns. They knew happy, healthy workers were productive workers. So I would say this isn't something new, and it's a notion that people have debated for years. What should business be in terms of society? Is business an active participatory citizen, which is why 
the term brand citizenship comes about because it's about brands being active, Mm. participating in the social fabric of our life because they do participate in the social fabric of our life. They change the way we do so many things and we trust them to deliver on so many things for us and solve so many of our problems. So it's sort of a natural extension from that. It's a good point because, I mean, I think we actually see brands probably wrongly, but it's the way that it exists in companies as fellow humans in a way. (laughs) Um, They take on personalities. They have responsibilities. uh, They certainly have, in many uh, scenarios, legal obligations that are equivalent to, you know, if they were a person. Um, They're just a big complex person. Um, But actually, when I see (laughs) a a, a business sponsor my local kids, you know, soccer uh, match, I have an emotional attachment to that brand as if it was a person that had donated that money or what have you and then they have a role and they are a citizen. I think, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it a lot like that. So, and you were kind of teasing it before and, and I think it's maybe a good moment here to unpack what are the five steps of brand citizenship? So, the five steps are trust, enrichment, responsibility, community and contribution and I'll explain that a little bit further. So what we learned was in this era of cynicism, in this era where we're communicated to nonstop by brands, um, as well as by each other, uh, the notion of trust is the starting point, not the end game of forming a relationship that's meaningful. And if you think about it, as you're saying, brands are human, and a brand is the human face of an organization. And you think about your best friends, and which friends are the ones that you count on over and over again. The ones that you know do what they say. So trust is all about delivering on your promises. And whether it's to your customers, your employees, you know, your investors, whomever it is, it's about delivering on what you say. And that is the beginning point of solving this notion of personal me problems. So the five steps run across something I call the me to we continuum. And it begins with me and ends with we, in the same way we're talking about the notion of corporate citizenship. So trust is the starting point for me, delivering on your promise to me. Then we move to enrichment. And enrichment is about enhancing our lives. The example I gave about how people defined Apple is a really good example of enrichment. Other things people talk to us about enrichment is in the U.S. there's a brand called Mrs. Myers. And Mrs. Myers is household cleaning products. They've expanded a little bit from there, but let's take the essence of where they began as a product. product. And they have these natural scents. And they're not 100% natural, but they're honest, so they're, they're trustworthy in what they are natural and they're not natural about. And people say, you know what? They do their best and some ingredients can't be 100% natural. And at least they're telling me this. But when people talk about what cleaning is like with Mrs. Myers, They talk about being in a French lavender field and how it makes their cleaning that much more joyful. I'll tell a personal story even, and and the brands in the book, importantly, are not brands I personally chose. They are the brands that came out of the research. And I spent a lot of time researching a multitude of brands people named and chose the ones I chose because they illustrated each step in a way that was easier to understand and people could latch onto in a simpler manner. But for, if I tell a personal story about Mrs. Myers, my husband, who really could care less generally about uh, household cleaning products, when I buy, I'm not going to say who because they're actually a very good, do good brand and efficacious in a big way. When I buy a competitor of Mrs. Myers, he gets upset. He likes Mrs. Myers' scent. 
And he's like, if I'm going to wash my dishes, I want to do it with this. So he reflects the same thing that people told us. And my editor, when she read some of these things, originally said, you're in love with these brands. They have to be your clients. And I'm like, they're not, actually. These are who people mentioned. And she one day had her housekeeper come in, and she noticed she was using Mrs. Myers. And she sent me this email, and she's like, it's fascinating. It's as if she read the section of the book. Um, and her housekeeper came from Brazil and had never been anywhere but Rio and Boston. And she said, you know, she came in and told me when I asked her what she liked about Mrs. Myers, how she felt that she was transported to France. So it's real, this sense of enrichment and the sense of the experience you can build for your customers through little things like this are amazing. Burt's Bees is another product I outline in there. And people just feel like they're transforming their lips when they put Burt's Bees on them. And these, these brands and enrichment also have great stories, you know. They're storytellers about themselves, and people latch on to the values in their stories. So you're enriching their life through how your product and service works, and you're also enriching your life through the greater emotional experience. You know, when we talk about brand experiences, we talk about emotions often as the benefit, not as part of the experience. But the emotion you create is part of the experience. Well, and when we talk about customer experience in general on this podcast, it is inherently emotional. And so, you know, the two that you've touched on and explained so far and unpacked trust and enrichment are really uh, a great representation of that. Uh, You know, as you're speaking, I'm like, wow, this is this is very relevant to brand citizenship, but it's especially and equally relevant to customer experience as its own discipline. Oh, absolutely. Continue with the, the last three. Okay, so the pivot point between being a me brand and a we brand is responsibility. And I must confess, I didn't realize that the pivot point sat in the middle, which it sounds like, well, of course it sits in the middle, until I started talking about the book to people. And it suddenly occurred to me, oh my goodness, this is the pivot point between being a me brand and a we brand and it's responsibility. And responsibility is interesting because it's essentially the traditional notions of corporate social responsibility. But where it really differentiates itself from that is the notion of how it begins. And people told us that unless a brand, unless a business, unless a company treats its employees well and fairly first, they don't care what else it's doing to do good. It's a good point because everything else is just a veneer or in the worst case scenario, is even a marketing ploy. <laughs> I mean, I've seen some corporate uh, responsibility campaigns where it's measured by, you know, engagement and all these other things. So it's like, well, are you actually, <laughs> do you actually care about the thing that you're doing? And you well, can't, do, yeah. if you do those, I mean, they're still net, you know, positive in the world. And so there's a separate, uh, I suppose, intellectual debate around that. But I suppose just to your point is it d- must start with treating your employees well, because if you can't treat your own employees well in your own home, then giving to charity but you're abusing your children kind of negates the two right (laughs) well and and yes and and actually one of the things um that i first started realizing when we were talking about this and i think i don't know if it was a participant in the research in the beginning that actually surfaced this or it came up in one of our brainstormings was that actually we we think of this as a zero-sum game historically being a responsible business is historically you do good when you do bad and actually, the whole notion of brand citizenship and this whole notion of moving along the me to we continuum is additive. It's about creating mutual and exponential benefit for everybody. And so it's not about give and take, it's give and give and give, and then receive, receive, receive. 
So it's, it's a different way of looking at it. So, but what's important is responsibility, you know, is clearly also about treating your suppliers well, having an ethical supply chain, sustainability initiatives, and things like that. But again, people said, I won't give you credit for it. And the notion of brand citizenship is not about adding cost to a business, but it's about seeing things we often have thought of as cost to business as investments into the business, investments into loyalty, investments into innovation, investments into growth. So if you're investing into these things, you're not going to get the investment back from your supply chain in terms of your reputation, in terms of building loyalty, from, from you know, sustainability initiatives, et cetera, unless you are treating your employees well and fairly in people's minds first. And you have brands like Walmart that are extraordinary in what they've done in terms of sustainability and in terms of corporate social responsibility. They are doing amazing things. But people still are suspicious of anything they say when they talk about their employees. And they recently announced in the U.S. that they, they gave a dollar increase in the hourly wage to employees. And they're do, Walmart is actually doing a lot of initiatives to improve its treatment of employees and has for several, if not many years. However, people don't trust it. Yeah, there's a, there's a skepticism. Yes, there is a skepticism. And getting over that skepticism is really hard. And that's where Walmart is doing things right in that they're not talking about their initiatives. And people, most people don't know about them. And I think people should because I actually think they'd be amazed. But because that, that shadow of treating employees poorly sits over them, they, they still are not quite there to get credit for it. And when they recently gave this dollar increase in the hourly wage, I tweeted about it. And I can't tell you how many people tweeted back at me, oh, but they've just laid off people here and they've just done this there. So they're doing it just to make up for it. So shadows about treating employees poorly sit over you for a very long time. So we, we move from that into this notion of community. And community is step four, and that's the first space of really being a we business. Responsibility, you can see, is part of the we space, but it's a pivot between being a me brand and a we brand. And community is all about bringing people together through shared values. And it's very easy to say it's through building social media communities, but it's actually so much more than that. You know, diversity and inclusion is a big issue now. So the notion of affiliation groups are a way to build trust and community inside an organization. Uh, I talk in the book about this thing IBM had in 2004 called the Values Jam. And IBM at that point was financially stronger, but culturally weaker in becoming financially stronger. And they knew they had to do something to bring the sensibility of IBM back. So before Facebook existed, they created a two to three day values jam where anybody who worked in the company could contribute to a conversation about what should IBM's values be? What does IBM value? What's the glue that holds us together? So they're creating now a global community. And they went and then took that concept and used it with customers for, or with clients for innovation and things like that nature. So they started bringing little mini jams together of people who share values. You also have the notion of B2B communities. And I talk in the book about the Forest Stewardship Council, which brings brands that all believe in using sustainable paper and sustainable paper materials in a certified manner. And 
the Forest Stewardship Council doesn't only certify things, but it brings these businesses together to learn from one another. And B Labs, which is certifies businesses for purpose, also does that. They bring people together who believe in this notion. So community is so much bigger than the notion of social media communities, which is a very easy, actually, uh, place to go. It's also about bringing employees and local people together to, you know, work on a park or work on a school, you know, do things that build you into your community. And then from there, we move to contribution. And contribution is make me feel bigger than I am. So through my association with you, make me feel like I'm having a bigger impact. And that's me as an employee, me as a supplier, me as an investor, or me as a customer. And it's very easy to put social enterprises in the space of contribution, but other businesses belong there as well. Although they now have and have always had a purpose at the center of them. Seventh Generation is a company that people feel when they buy their products and services, they're contributing to them. As a matter of fact, in the very first research, someone who named Seventh Generation as one of the brands that was a good corporate citizen, you know, said, they value what I value. Uh, My experience with them feels like solidarity. So just in buying them, they felt like they were part of a community, not only contributing more. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, strong, strong statement. And then one of my favorite examples of this is from a really more mainstream brand in the UK, which is Kenko Coffee, which is owned by Mandela as a huge consumer goods or or fast-moving consumer goods because you're Australia, so that's probably how you... FMCG, yeah. Rather than CPG. Yeah, yeah. Kenko is a coffee company and they source, and they're owned by Mondelez, as I said, and they source a lot of their beans from Honduras. And Honduras, as you may or may not know, is the number one or number two murder capital in the world every year. And when teenagers hit a certain age in Honduras, they have three choices. They can join a gang, they can leave the country, or they can get killed. It's very simple. Kenko is giving them a third alternative, to apply for a scholarship to learn to be a coffee grower. Now, whilst they only can do this for 30 to 50 teens a year. Imagine if Kenko created a community among other coffee brands that were also producing, not necessarily in Honduras, but let's say also in South America in different places. And they worked with a series of NGOs rather than just the one NGO Kenko works with to expand this program. You could change a continent. So mainstream brands can also be brands that embrace this notion of contribution. So that's the five steps unpacked. And welcome to the quick fire round where we ask quick fire questions and you have 10 seconds to answer. Michael and I are going to trade blows. Are you ready? Not really, but sure, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Your time starts at the end of the first question. What's the best advice you've ever received? To say hello and ask people if they had a good weekend on Monday morning rather than diving right into a meeting. What uh, skill are you terrible at? Oh, gosh. Um, complimenting myself. I'm a never-ending personal critic. <laughs> I think we all are in some ways. So, uh, no, it's a nice observation, though. What book has changed your life and why? Oh, see, there's, there's the right answer to that, which is more a business-type answer. And then there's sort of the real answers. Give us the real answer. I don't know if there's a single book. There's different books at different stages of my life. But to be really honest, the book that jumped to mind was Conversations with God. 
I've heard really good things about that. Whether you are religious or not, actually, it's it's meant to be quite uh, an impactful book. And what would be the business one? The business one would probably be one of the first books I read before I entered advertising. And, you know, everyone reads Ogilvy. I actually read John O'Toole as well, The Trouble with Advertising, and it gave a different perspective. What's your guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure... Any sweet for dessert. And what brand do you look up to? I'm staring right now at a Steinway piano, and that's certainly a brand I would look up to uh, because of the, the craftsmanship, the maintaining the integrity, uh, the beauty, and the sound quality. We've never had a piano brand mentioned there. It's usually like <laughs> Nike and Apple and Nordstrom and Southwest Airlines, you know, all the kind of favourites. So I'm, I'm glad you took, a, you took the road less travelled. It's good. Thank you for sharing and unpacking the, the the full five steps. What I think is kind of interesting is the first few that you explained, so trust and enrichment are quite customer focused. And then kind of as you get towards the middle, there's that responsibility, which kind of has a bit more of an employee focus. And then you go community and contribution, which actually fits more in the corporate social responsibility space. And I know I'm generalizing, but I think when we think about corporate social responsibility, which was kind of a buzzword for the last 10 years or so, we generally think about, you know, corporations donating to charity and just giving some portion of profits to a charity. Yeah, it's that last step, right? It's the fifth step only. Exactly. And so, you've kind of actually found a number of other ways that, uh, and through, you know, research-backed studies, that organizations can contribute to society, can contribute to their employees, and can really just in general enrich the lives of everybody that comes into contact with them. So, I think it's really a really nice model. My question is, how can businesses think about applying this model in a way that it helps them to build a better customer experience? We need to start then at the beginning again, because for the model to really work and the thing that underpins it is this notion of having a unifying purpose. So as a brand strategist, not someone who develops brands through advertising or other communications, for me, the notion of a brand starting off with a higher raison d'etre, a higher reason for existing, has always been part of how I think of branding, whether it's a corporate brand or a product brand. And so if you start off with a higher purpose as the unifying factor, as you run along those five things, it is all about delivering a customer experience against that unifying purpose. So you start with why you exist and be clear in how you communicate and how you behave and deliver that across everything. And as I said, before, customer experience is not only walking into a store. It's also the experience of using that product in your home. It's also the emotional connection you get through the experience of being part of a group that's all bound together. If you think about community in its simplest sense in terms of customer experience, Apple is always a great example. Even before Apple had its stores, when Apple first came out with its very first computer, the people who used that computer were all joined together in a community of shared values of having a non-PC experience effectively. When I was in business school, these two guys <laughs> had the first portable Apple computers and they used to wheel them around on like a, um, you know, one of those little carts that people use for briefcases and suitcases. Right, yeah. <laughs> used to wheel them in and out of the classroom and the professors were appalled. 
But it's before laptops really existed. And they were like the only people who actually had this portable thing. The rest of us had, and I'm dating myself in this, which is really sort of embarrassing. The rest of us only had desktops sitting at our desks in our, our you know, apartments or, or your dorm rooms or whatever you were in. And these guys would wheel these around and they were kind of freaky, but you saw them as something different. And that was part of the experience. I think what this is, is forcing people to do and step back and think in the same way we were talking about this earlier is, is customer experience solely the interaction you have with the customer at different quote unquote touch points in a journey or can you expand that journey and the touch points to touching their heart, to the impression that experience leaves for them later? So I would say that this just challenges you to think of customer experience in a new and different and bigger and, to me, more exciting way. I'm interested in how businesses have practically gone on this journey and brought it to life. And I think the great brands that you mentioned seem to intrinsically do it, sometimes without being completely aware, often because it's a founder who deeply cares about these elements. They deeply care about the me being the customer and ensuring that they go to the all the little details to get that right. And then they see their place in the world as being part of something bigger, right? Like when you buy a Tesla, you feel like you're part of a, a green movement and part of, you know, sticking it to the oil industry or whatever it may be. And that you, you know, buy into maybe even the visionary Mars and that, you know, your profits are going towards that. There's something bigger going on. And then there's, you know, the kind of the, the social piece. So I think companies that seem to get it right are probably often led by, you know, founders and leaders that intrinsically do all of this stuff. But if you're approached by a business or if you've looked at businesses that kind of, you know, doing some of these elements, dipping in and out, but, you know, maybe they've had some new leadership or something's really clicked and they really get it and they genuinely want to implement these five steps and go, do you know what? We haven't actually been, you know, always looking after our employees, right? Or do you know what? We've been too shareholder led first focused of our next quarterly profits, uh, et cetera. We really want to go on this journey. Do you have any examples of business companies, brands that have embraced this and, you know, practically brought this to life and, and how do they do that? So SunTrust is a bank that I talk about in the book under, under uh, step one trust. And as we all know, we're, we're slightly hesitant to trust any financial services organization. Um, you know, financial services organizations in the consumer space often live, especially, you know, banks live a lot of times off inertia because it's just easier to stay. And uh, years ago, when I actually worked in banking, I used to call it dissatisfaction. People leave when they hit a level of dissatisfaction. They don't necessarily stay because they're satisfied. So a bank is a really interesting example of this. So SunTrust Bank um, has a purpose to light the way to financial being, all right? Sounds grand, sounds sort of almost like, you know, someone created it as, as a strap line, but actually they live it. And um, they have this initiative called On Up that anyone can sign up for. You don't have to be their customer. And when they launched it, they realized Americans were feeling financial stress and really weren't feeling comfortable managing their money. And, and they didn't feel in control of their lives because they weren't in control of their money. So they created this online initiative that actually, when I was writing the book, I had to sign up for. <laughs> and it's actually amazing because they really are giving people sound 
advice on how to start feeling more in control of their money. They simultaneously also pledged to give a dollar for everyone who signed up to something called Operation Hope, which is a nonprofit that's focused on economic empowerment for financially underserved, so in areas and communities where you know banks don't tend to be, and they work with a nonprofit on that. So they went and just decided they were going on this pathway. And I think that's the most important thing to talk about is that this is a journey. And whilst the five steps do feel sequential, when we spoke to participants in the research, they tend to assign a brand in one of those boxes. They tend to think of a brand strategically in one of those. And the brands that embrace the whole Me Too We continuum glide back and forth, even though strategically their purpose or their value proposition sits in one of the boxes but they glide back and forth and held elements of it. So you just have to figure out when you want to set on the pathway, the biggest thing is having courage and bravery to say, you know what, we're now committed to finding a way to embrace purpose, to finding a way to do good. And we are committed to taking a long-term holistic journey. And we're going to find the easiest places to start and move from there. You will make mistakes. People do. You have companies, I talk about Unilever and uh, Kimberly Clark in the book because they each have some really interesting examples. And, you know, Vaseline came upon what became its social mission, um, which is called the Healing Project, serendipitously. It was looking for it and its answer was sitting in the essence of what the product was about. It's about healing. Yet it took an article to trigger the notion that, oh my goodness, we can help heal in places where healing is a real challenge in more torn areas and things. And so they have a whole thing called the Healing Project where they, they donate Vaseline to doctors as they go. For example, if you think about sort of Doctors Without Borders, they go in and they help deal with people who have injuries and things in war torn areas. And they have a whole set of initiatives on how they train people and how they've expanded it. It didn't happen day one. It was little by little by little. Andrex, Kimberly Clark, has, has something that has to do with Angola and toiletry and hygiene. And both Andrex and Vaseline, in the book, I outlined the business case and the numbers they were comfortable with me revealing that show how this enhanced their business. And whilst Vaseline increased its sales in a big way that's, that's fascinating in market share, the thing that really brings this home for me is Andrex. It's the number one toilet tissue brand in the UK. And when it had its special packs that were to fund this initiative they have in Angola, its sales increased. The number one brand's sales increased. That says there's a business issue. There's a business reason to do this. So... I, I think we all buy into this methodology and, and this ethos and this mission and this movement. Sign me up. <laughs> Where can yeah. I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> However, and I do want to throw um, a bit of a, a bit of a wrench over the fence and a bit of a challenging question to, to kind of wind us up here. I think what happens when you start to think about all of these five uh, different steps is you start to bring in a whole bunch of other stakeholders that you have to worry about. 
not only are you trying to sell products to make the customer happy and have a, a great customer experience, you're also trying to make sure your employees are satisfied and feel like they're well looked after, as well as, you know, the broader marketplace viewing you as a good corporate citizen, helping charitably, building community, all those kinds of things. And yet, there's still an expectation that you need to deliver profits for your shareholders. And there's a great Milton Friedman quote, there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources to engage in activities designed to increase its profits. So, how do you manage all of these stakeholders? So, that goes back to where I started and uh, or toward the beginning when I said this notion came from Milton Friedman in the 70s. Exactly. We come full circle. Yes. So, <laughs> Peter Drucker has a whole slew of quotes that I could throw back at you, but I'm going to actually give you a slightly more solid answer than throwing another quote back at you because we could probably go back and forth. But... If we step back and we think about adding value to shareholders, it depends on if you think about adding value to shareholders in a week, in a quarter, in a year, in two years, et cetera. And I would say today, all of these stakeholders you're talking about are important. And millennials, who are as old as 36, 37, they're not babies anymore. Everyone seems to think they are still, but they're not. And Gen Z is starting to emerge as a group people are noticing and separating from millennials, which is a good thing. But millennials tend to stay in jobs until they're dissatisfied. And they're costing, at least I think the figures for the US, Gallup calculated $30 billion a year in retraining. So by keeping your employees in, And by having loyal employees, you're delivering more to your shareholders. (laughs) Because if you have to keep training your employees, they're actually not going to deliver a great product and service. And you're going to have a huge cost to the business each time you have to retrain a new person who comes in because someone left too early. So there's one aspect. We also have investors now and people like Larry Fink and Jamie Dimon who are saying you have to embrace social responsibility because that's how you create long-term sustainable value. And I mean sustainable as a maintained value. And we can't think about the short term only because that's hurting the economy because we're not investing properly. So if we're not investing properly and we're not keeping our business going, eventually the shareholder's return is going to drop. So you're not going to give back to them. So that's one way of looking at it. And then there's a simpler way of looking at it of something that I talk about in the book that um, I wish I had come up with this name, but I picked it up somewhere along the way, of a virtuous circle. And when you focus on all of your stakeholders, you create a virtuous circle that creates exponential benefit for everybody. And I talked about this being about mutual and exponential benefit. So we have a cycle that happens. You provide your employees with a living wage, treat them fairly, maintain equitable supplier relationships, and then you produce higher quality products and services. You produce higher quality products and services and you do that on fair value and based on quality, and you create your charges around that, you live up to your product claims, you provide excellent customer service, and you outsell your competitors. You outsell your competitors, and then you incorporate the changing dynamics in the world and anticipate customers changing needs into your product and service offerings. You further nurture loyal customers, you reduce the cost of sales because you have loyalty, which costs you less to acquire a new customer, and then you increase your profits. You increase your profits, you pay out higher returns to your investors, to your shareholders. You provide your workforce with better benefits. You foster better community relations. 
You improve your supplier chain, you invest into R&D, et cetera, et cetera, and guess what? The cycle starts all over. So ultimately, this will benefit shareholders a lot more than just focusing on profit. And thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Well, there we go. Excellent. Amazing interview with Anbar Thompson. Really was. I'm really stunned. There was so much jam-packed, great uh, information in there. How do you think about the takeaways for this episode? You know, it's funny. Most of our shows, I sort of am taking notes in real time and sort of writing down things that made an impression on me and that, that, that we you know usually riff on in these takeaways. To me, I just sort of feel like I got one big punch in the face. Uh, there was just it, it, that the whole thing was so good. I mean, obviously the five, you know, her five steps, it may be worth, you know, deconstructing that. But I mean, I think for me, the big aha moment is it's like I've intrinsically known it. It's like we know it with these brands. They seem to have this care factor that goes so wide it go it starts with me as the the user you know and i feel cared for and loved and and then they seem to have this broader social view and you know yes we know the the whole purpose driven company and uh, etc but i thought the way that she framed it as starting on a me journey to a we journey and those five steps you know really helped frame this up and so maybe we should just unpack those five steps and and, and have a bit of a chat about our impressions and takeaways from those you know what i agree uh, i think that's actually a really nice way to frame the conversation the first one was trust, which I really liked. You, you might remember from our conversation with Robert and when he mentioned about that call center issue and then he said, actually, the issue here is that they've broken your trust. <laughs> and you're like, that is the issue. Actually, like I'm in a relationship right now. Like it sounds weird saying I'm in a relationship with my insurance provider, but there is a relationship and there is trust that is breaking down. Um, and the fact that that's where she started and with a very, very, very simple sentence to say, just deliver on your promises. Like it's as easy as that. I loved that. So, the second one was enrichment and uh, I think enrichment was really great because it's not just talking about how a brand or a business can add value in in terms of the product they produce, but it's it's enrichment in terms of, you know, kind of all other areas. So, there's kind of... What's that emotional experience that we talk about, right? Exactly, right? Uh, And so... You know, we've spoken a number of times on this podcast about the fact that customer experience is inherently emotional. And so, when you're kind of developing campaigns, when you're developing products, when you're thinking about how you interact with customers, enrichment is really important to consider because uh, it's it's more than just the product that you produce. That third one, responsibility, it's, it's a really interesting one, right? Because the responsibility usually is do things that aren't illegal. <laughs> That's how we usually think about things, about uh, responsibility. And maybe if you want to take it up a notch, you're kind of like, oh, let's try to do the right thing. So, like, you may send an agreement to your suppliers or get one from yourself. Like, this is what, you know, corporate responsibility is. But I like how she framed that as you can't really do anything without starting at home first, mm. right? So, mm-hmm. treating your employees well, like, is is how it all starts. And that is the foundation um, of, of great business responsibility and great corporate responsibility. And I even think as an employee in an organization, I don't think you should sub out on this. This is about you being a great manager and starting with being great people manager first. You know, it's not just like, oh, like I have to wait until my company becomes more, you know, employee centric or what have you. I think we all take on this responsibility of what do we bring to the table and it starts with our own people that we work with. 
So the next one was community and I, I love this because community is more than just, you know, social media. And in fact, it's really the tip of the iceberg and something that has only come about in the last, you know, five to 10 years. But brands have been building communities for years because yes. a community is really, I mean, Michael, you use this word actually when, when we speak, you, you talk about tribes. Right. Building a community of people who have a shared vision for something. Yeah. And shared values. She, she used the term shared values, which I love. And so community is really, and Anne said this, it's the glue that holds all of us together, um, all the stakeholders outside of the brand. And then the last one was around contribution. And usually when I see the word contribution and when she initially said it, I saw this as the final sort of like token charity giving. You know, I'm now contributing back to my community. Like even that word... Uh, sort of conjures up those uh, ideas and thoughts. Yes. It sort of is almost like now I bring out my wallet and I contribute to the broader society because that's the right thing to do and it is what I want to do, but it's contributing. But the way that she framed it, she said, the contribution is about making me feel like I'm part of something, making me feel like I'm part of something bigger. You know, it's that whole contributing back to society, you know, and sort of using the Tesla analogy is that, yes, they're contributing to a greener movement, what have you, but I'm part of that, um, which obviously links very closely in with the community and the shared values, but I really like that. And of course, yes, it is contributing back to society, whether it's donating to the local soccer club or doing, you know, some of these amazing, you know, things in South America that she talked about. But, um, you know, if you sort of zoom out, it's about make me feel like I'm part of something bigger. So to sum up the takeaways, the five steps are trust, Enrichment, responsibility, community, and contribution. Yeah, so great show, Adam. Um, I'm off to download Anne's book if you would like to do so as well. It is called Do Good embracing brand citizenship to fuel both purpose and profit if you have a skim through that as well i'd actually love to get your thoughts add me on linkedin i'm michael momsen and feel free to send me a message uh and we will relay that feedback back to Anne. i think that would be nice uh, that'd be a nice touch nice and if you'd like to get in contact with me on linkedin i'm adam jaffrey thanks for listening see ya thanks for listening Customer Experience Leaders is a co-production of Rate It, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback, and Wavelength, a full-service podcast agency for brands. This episode was produced by Christopher Lawson and me, Adam Jaffrey. It was also edited and mixed by Christopher Lawson. Our theme music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley, and The Shrugs. If you like this episode, please subscribe in your podcast app of choice and leave us a review. It really makes a big difference. And finally, if you're looking for a way to get more customer feedback in your business, the team at Rateit would love to help. Find out more at rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. I'm Adam Jaffrey. Thank you for listening. We produce this show every fortnight. So, we'll speak to you in two weeks. Hold up. 